to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Hi, everyone. Let's talk today about COVID and addiction. It seems like the pandemic is almost over in the United States and masks are coming down in many places. And now we're dealing with the aftermath. There is the aftermath of almost three and a half million COVID deaths worldwide and almost 600,000 in the United States. But on high truths, we're looking at the cost of addiction during COVID. And let's look at some recent studies. First of all, mortality, because death is a fact and everything else is conjecture. United States mortality counts 81,000 people who died from drug overdoses in the 12-month period before May 2020, the highest in U.S. history. Next, let's look at emergency department visits. In a study in Virginia, non-fatal overdoses were compared for the four months between March and June 2019, pre-pandemic, to the same months in 2020 during the pandemic. And what happened? The total overdoses doubled up 123% during the pandemic. And at the same time, the total number of emergency department visits went down by almost 30%. So really, a disproportionate amount of overdose deaths compared to a massive decrease of emergency department visits nationwide. And I can attest that that's what we've seen in our emergency department as well in San Diego. What about positive urine drug tests? In a study of 15,000 patients pre- and post-pandemic, the percent of positive drug screens was up for all drugs. Heroin up from 1.2% to 2%, cocaine up 3.6% to 4.76%. Fentanyl had the greatest rise from 3.8% to 7.3%. And methamphetamine had the most common positive reported drugs up from 5.9% to 8.2%. And interestingly, in the study, marijuana received a free pass. Now, let's look at prescriptions during the pandemic. Symphony Health is a pharmacy chain database that includes 92% of all national retail pharmacy claims and 71% of mail order pharmacy claims. They evaluated prescriptions pre- and post-pandemic from May 2019 through December 2020. At the start of the pandemic in March 2020, all medications were down 14.75%. People were not going to the doctors and they were not going to the pharmacies. Opioid prescriptions were down 8.1%, a little less. And the tragedy is that naloxone prescriptions per week were down 26.3%. Naloxone, also known as Narcan, is the opioid reversal medication that saves lives in case of overdose. Looking at naloxone, people with Medicare and commercial insurance had significantly declined in naloxone, down 34 and 31%, 
While people with Medicaid or cash had no statistically significant change in filling naloxone during the pandemic. Do you see the mismatch here? At a time of peak overdoses, we had the lowest number of naloxone prescriptions. We suffered an attack from a virus, COVID, and a double whammy of an attack of fentanyl and drugs. So this is my offer. Anyone who needs a prescription for naloxone can get one from me from the website hightruths.com with no questions asked. Frankly, it should be over the counter. Let's hear our question for the episode. It comes from Erica Packman, who is a project director at CCR, Center for Community Research. CCR has been the greatest sponsor to High Truths podcast, and I, as well as many of our listeners, are very grateful for this support. Let's hear from Erica. Hi, my name is Erica Packman. I am the project director at the Center for Community Research in San Diego County. I built the evaluation structure for the county substance use prevention initiatives, namely the Meth Strike Force, Prescription Drug Abuse Task Force, Binge and Injury to Drinking, and the Marijuana Prevention Initiative, and I continue to support these evaluation efforts. I have three questions for High Truths and Dr. Lev. First, what is the greatest aftermath of COVID on the issue of drug addiction? Second, What strategies have you found to be most effective for preventing youth from experimenting with opioids? And third, are there strategies or approaches that are successful at keeping individuals engaged in treatment? Thank you so much. Erica, I definitely need a high truths expert to answer your excellent questions. And that high truths expert comes from the National Institute of Health as a leading expert in drug prevention and treatment. Dr. Wilson Compton is a psychiatrist and serves as the deputy director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA, which is part of NIH, the National Institute of Health. Dr. Wilson's bio is available on the High Truths show notes. Dr. Wilson Compton, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you, Dr. Lev. And it's really, really a pleasure for me to have you here and to see you again and for being our high truths expert. Um, you were my guardian angel when I came to Washington, D.C., and I'll always be grateful to you. Coming from a clinical background to working with federal policy is learning a new language, and you really helped teach me and guide me, and, and I really thank you for that. You're very welcome. It was very exciting to have an emergency room clinician and physician join the federal government at the highest levels. And so having an emergency room expert to help guide drug abuse policy for the White House and for our country was was remarkable. Thank you. It it was um, really a special opportunity, and I hope we made a little bit of a difference. Um, It's always interesting to learn about people's journey to great leadership positions. And you went to medical school with one of my colleagues, Dr. Eric McDonald. And from there, how did you become a national expert and leader in the field of addiction? Well, thank you for asking me about my personal uh, uh, story. Um, To a little bit, there's a a degree of serendipity and uh, being willing to jump on opportunities as they arise. So I had a more typical academic background. Uh, You know, I finished my psychiatry residency at Washington University and then joined the faculty at Washington University as as a assistant professor, as an instructor and then assistant professor. And as I moved through the ranks, obtained grants and was supported by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, I became very interested in how government operated. And 
when a position became open in the early 2000s, the search committee reached out to me to ask if I was interested. And I really hadn't fully thought of taking a permanent government position, but it's a, it was an intriguing job to be a division director, which means helping to guide research in the area of prevention and epidemiology and health services for our country and internationally. And so it was a wonderful opportunity. And I thought I'd be there just a few years, but it turns out the chance to influence science across a broad range of studies and, and areas, as well as to work with wonderful partners at the Office of National Drug Control Policy and all the other federal partners has been just delightful and has kept me engaged now for almost 20 years at, at NIDA. And you've done so much for our country in that position. I really thank you for that. Um, Erica has posed a few great questions that we need your help in answering. And her first one is about COVID. What is the greatest aftermath of the COVID um, in the issue of drug addiction? One of the questions we had was how would the pandemic affect drug abuse and drug addiction generally? We certainly know that one of the big predictors of relapse and of having difficulty with substances and relying more on substances is being under stress and feeling anxiety and pressure. So there was certainly a concern that we may see increases in substance consumption because of the stress of the pandemic that everyone's been feeling. There were also a few specific issues that were of great concern. One of the things that we've all done during the pandemic is isolate ourselves, is not be around as many people. Well, for somebody that uses injection drugs, who are those most at risk for an overdose, being alone when you use drugs may mean that there's no one there to rescue you if you overdose. So there was a great concern that we might see increase in use of substances and increasing overdose. In fact, there's evidence of both of those. So particularly the overdose uh, crisis appears to have continued and progressed during this pandemic with a marked increase in overdose deaths at least through the most recent data, which would be October of 2020. So at least the first six months of the pandemic saw a marked increase in overdose deaths. And it's it's interesting, we have we have two things going on that, that make this such a tragedy. One is, as you said, the anxiety and the social isolation, but the other one is the increased availability of fentanyl that's really driving um, the deaths in our country. Well, when you look, uh, at the different regions of the country, you're absolutely right that we've seen the synthetic opioids uh, like fentanyl and related very high potency compounds affect new parts of the country. So you're out in California. And while, of course, you've had fentanyl outbreaks now for a number of years, but they have skyrocketed in the last year or year and a half. And so as drug dealers figure out that they can mix fentanyl with products that they're selling in the streets across your area and in many parts of the country that didn't have too much fentanyl in the past, that's presented a major new burden and a new reason for concern. So, and you're right, in California and San Diego where I am, our fentanyl deaths have tripled. And in the homeless population, the fentanyl deaths have gone up fivefold. Um, are you saying that in the other parts of the East Coast that that has not been affected as dramatically with the, the pandemic that the deaths have been so high anyway? That's part of it. In other words, when we look at the data for the first few months of the pandemic, the increases were particularly in the Midwest, West and Southwest, um, which had not been as hard hit by fentanyl previously. And so that's part of the explanation. There've been increases across the whole country, but they are even greater in, in, in those regions. So it's, it's an example to me of how 
both the social factors related to the pandemic play a role, but drug dealing and drug selling that progresses and changes all the time plays a key role in this crisis. I want to share with you just uh, to, to put in your, your ear one of the solutions that we're working on and locally that we hope to go nationwide is getting the medical community involved in the issue of fentanyl through automatic and universal fentanyl testing in hospitals. There's no reason why every hospital in America can't include fentanyl in their drug testing, and it makes a difference in, in treatment and in lives. So... We created a fentanyl testing toolkit on how to get that done. And I can share that with you as well. I'd be very interested. I think you're reminding us that if people use routine drug testing uh, panels, that they may not be testing for the drugs that are prevalent in their area. And so you need to pay attention to what's happening in your local area to make sure that you're screening appropriately so that you don't think, oh, I didn't find this substance, not realizing that you didn't even look for it. Right. And we've had tragedies with that, you know, children who've died from a fentanyl, uh, presumed fentanyl overdose, but as they're in the ICU, they're on a fentanyl drip, and then the parents can never get the real answer that they're really looking for. Um, so, yeah, so that's one way that we're, we want to advocate for the medical community to be involved in the, in the fentanyl crisis. The other question from Erica has to do with what is the most effective for preventing youth from experimenting with opioids, but I would say experimenting with any drugs? Well, I think that's, that's important to keep in mind is that for youth prevention, we're often focused on the broad range of substances so that it's, it's important to think about providing a protective shield around use of any substance for youth and not just focusing on one particular substance. Because frankly, if a kid starts out with tobacco or alcohol, their long-term prognosis may be just as bad or even worse than some of those that start out with other substances. So that we wanna think about providing a protective shield with universal prevention across the broad range. So our, our role at the National Institute on Drug Abuse is to help use science to enable solutions to problems like this. So what can we learn from previous research on prevention? When we think about drug abuse, it's really a developmental disorder. So it's important in terms of what are the early antecedents of drug use? What puts people at risk that we might be able to change? We know that disrupted families, poor family supervision, poor bonding to schools, poor engagement with your family or with schools plays a role. And that's way before drug use starts. But that's something that can be improved with neighborhood interventions, with family interventions, and with school-based interventions. Sometimes those can start as early as infancy or young, for very young children. And certainly there's a lot of evidence for the importance of early puberty or early or middle school interventions to provide protective shields for youth and keep them from using any of the substances. And, and uh, it's so important. I love what you had to say about universal protection of the brain. Right. And we, you know, medical communities used to universal precautions for preventing infections. We want universal precautions and protection of the developing brain, which um, NIDA really has uh, emphasized to the world about the developing brain and protecting that from any types of addiction. Um, we, when we're looking at the data, because Erica asked specifically about opioids, I think there's still a lot of movement and effort on opioids, but it's, I think it's, um, what I have to say about it is that I think that the opioid prescription epidemic is over. Um, not that the drug problem is over, but the prescription 
opioid epidemic is over. And I think our PDMP prescription drug monitoring data shows that in California, we're at the lowest amount of opioid prescribed since the history of measuring it. Um, yesterday, I was at a meeting of a large health plan and they looked at their data and they said 92% of all their patients who were on any pain medicines were on less than 50 morphine equivalents a day. Is that just me or do, would you agree that our prescription opioid epidemic is over? Not that our work in safe prescribing is over and we work together on that, but, but that that piece alone, just opioids, um, now it's down. Well, it's, I, I, I think it's important that we acknowledge some of the improvements, but I would be, I, I'd be careful about declaring victory when we still see some 15 or 16,000 deaths in 2019 from prescription opioids. That while the deaths leveled out starting in around 2011 or 12, when we started seeing changes in the prescribing patterns and in reducing those excess prescriptions that had been available, we still see a, a disturbing number of deaths uh, across the country. Now, does this mean that we haven't made progress? Of course not. We've made great progress, as you pointed out, in uh, uh, re reducing the overall dosage of for patients who require opioids for pain, uh, but also reducing the acute prescriptions. That's, after all, where most of the excess prescriptions and leftover medications came from, from injuries, from people that came into your emergency room or your colleagues' emergency rooms and were prescribed uh, uh, many more opioids than they ended up taking personally. So they would be available for diversion and misuse in their medicine cabinets. Uh, that still goes on way more than we would like. And so we have some room for improvement in the acute prescribing area in particular. And I, I, I think that the safe prescribing part has to do with um, opioids, but also if we want to get as a medical community, all medication related deaths down, something that's preventable down, that we have to th think about the combination of CNS depressants. Um, you know, you could be prescribed opiate at the right dose, a benzodiazepine at the right dose, a sleeping pill at the right dose, get over-the-counter Benadryl the uh, right dose, add to that a little marijuana from your dispensary, and then you become a statistic um, at the medical examiner's office. And so addressing all the CNS depressants um, in combination with the med for the medical community, I think is important. And we worked on that together. What do you, what do you think of that? Well, I totally agree. When we focus on the opioid crisis, we need to pay attention to, it's not just opioids, it's multiple substances. By the time people are using opioids, they typically have used many other substances along the way before they get to heroin, prescription drugs, or fentanyl. Uh, and so paying attention to the combinations is very important, both in terms of prevention and interrupting that trajectory to these to, to the, these very devastating outcomes, but also in terms of, of, of treatment, be thinking in terms of the multiple substances that people use. Uh, you know, you've highlighted the importance of for physicians to pay attention to CNS depressants uh, like benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, sedative hypnotics, and, and, and similar. But I'd also point out that reducing the combination of opioids with alcohol is another very important target for saving lives. That's a good point. It's, alcohol is a CNS depressant as well. And it's one that the public doesn't often think about in those terms, but the combination of alcohol but with prescription drugs, whether that's opioids or benzodiazepines, can be particularly lethal. 
Right. And transitioning from, you know, the safe prescribing includes, you know, all the different medications, including alcohol. Um, what is NIDA's stand on marijuana? The public um, hears how helpful it is in curing cancer and pain. And yet in the emergency department, there's not a day that goes by that I don't take care of a few people who are there with marijuana poisoning, either psychosis or cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Or I had a guy who had a pneumothorax who popped his lung for, from smoking. Um, you know, a lot of adverse events occur from using marijuana. And yet the public, you know, is, is very much emotionally tied to how wonderful it is. Well, I think you're pointing out something really important, which is public opinion and public thoughts often are well ahead of the data and the science. And our job at the National Institute on Drug Abuse is to develop the science, develop real information that we can count on to help guide policy and practice and help educate the public so that they can uh, take precautions at, uh, where reasonable and possible. So that's certainly uh, our, our policy at NIDA, which is to use science to provide the solutions and to help guide policies and practice. You know, you, you, you mentioned that marijuana has become popular in the potential treatment of many health conditions. And yet that is well ahead of the data where we have, turns out, very little data on whether marijuana is useful or harmful for many of these conditions. And yet we have a lot of data on the potential dangers of marijuana use. Those side effects that you described, plus many other harms that have been documented uh, in, in terms of regu particularly regular and heavy marijuana use. So I wanna share with you a new organization and love to hear your opinion. Um, we started a org medical organization called ISAAC, the International Academy on Science and Impact of Cannabis. Um, and these are physicians educating on marijuana. And part of that is a library that I put together. Maybe I shouldn't share it with you because you'll like, oh, you made all these mistakes, Roni. But I don't, but if, if you like it, then I did it. If you don't like it, then I kind of did it also. Um, but we put together a library of multiple um, problems from allergies to autism to GI problems, pulmonary, cardiac, all the way down to withdrawal and violence and um, put in their medical literature that's translated it into lay public understanding. So it'll say marijuana can cause cancer and then I'll have the article that says, yes, there's a twofold increase in testicular cancer, a certain type um, for people who use marijuana. Um, so I, we did that all on our own for free on our, on our, on our regular time. And um, I would love for NIDA to take a look and uh, see how we can improve and maybe partner and, and help be a, a voice in science education on, on the harms. Well, of course, I'll be delighted to take a look and uh, uh, provide input on, on what you're sharing with the public. It, it won't necessarily make it a NIDA product, but I'd be happy to provide my personal thoughts or our, 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 our thoughts so we can make it as strong as possible. Because you're certainly, as a clinician, you're always trying to educate your colleagues and the public about uh, about health issues like this. One of the concerns that I, I, I have with marijuana is while people are, are, are thinking about the potential health benefits of, of, of mar marijuana itself, and there may be benefits from some of the chemicals in this plant. This is a plant that has many, many different uh, 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 potent chemicals within it. Most famous are THC and CBD, 
but there are over a hundred other cannabinoid chemicals in, in these plants. And some of those may turn out to be useful for health conditions. So we wanna make sure that as we're hearing what our patients and what the public are using, that we're testing that in rigorous ways to determine who it helps, who it doesn't help, and what the side effects are. That's typical medication development, and that's the pathway we really want to promote. Well, I really thank you, and I love your guidance, as you've always uh, given me how to educate the public, but also the medical community. I don't think the medical community itself, and I, I know this from the opioid epidemic, living through that, that, that the medical community is not that much far ahead of the public in, in identifying um, harms. And for example, um, I've taken care of several patients who came to the emergency department with GI bleeds, internal bleeding. And it, it turns out that, you know, my la last patient was there for the third time. Each time he comes in the hospital, gets a blood transfusion, gets an endoscopy, they can't find the source of bleeding, but he's on a blood thinner and blood thinners have a drug interaction with um, cannabis products. And he's a regular cannabis user. So that was increasing, um, you know, the thinness of his blood and making him more susceptible to bleeding. Well, that's absolutely true. And uh, that interactions of something that people use on their own outside of healthcare are often overlooked by physicians. So uh, uh, you're highlighting the interactions with cannabis. That's a, a, a really important and an understudied area. But I would also point out that people don't always think about the interactions with the tobacco products they may be using or alcohol. And so getting physicians to pay attention to the broad range of substances that their patients may consume and not always volunteer so readily when they come to clinical attention is important. So one of the projects, and um, this comes, I, mean, I actually like am silly to admit that this is like a little project to a NIDA researcher, but what we did is uh, get together with several local pharmacies and have them put a little uh, drug interaction card, like just be aware um, of drug interactions on all prescriptions um, to be aware of drug interactions with their marijuana cards. And then we're going to pull the patients um, through a QR code and see, you know, what did they think of this? And then we'll ask the pharmacist what they thought of that. But also just to really bring awareness, that's one of the things we thought about, how do we bring awareness to the drug interaction problem? And, and that was a, you know, a, a local project that we're working on. Actually, that has tremendous implications for as a communication strategy. It's very simple and straightforward, but you could picture how that could be implemented by pharmacies all across the country. What I appreciate is that you're going the extra mile of not just handing out the card and hoping that it has an impact, but you're actually going to call some of the patients and find out whether those that got the card compared to those that didn't have a different interpretation. That's the way science and knowledge will move forward with a high quality uh, in, what you're doing is a is a trial, is a proper study of how it has an impact and whether it has an impact. Interesting. All right, I'm, we're just working on that. So maybe if you have time for me, I'll pick your brain on that project as well. I'd be delighted. We don't have very many people focusing on the potential interactions of cannabis with, and marijuana with other substances and medications. And so this is an untapped and relatively understudied area. That's one of the goals of the National Institute on Drug Abuse is to promote research in areas where we need solutions and we don't have them currently. Okay, I'm now really excited because I'm gonna send you what we're doing and maybe you could, we haven't done it yet. And uh, maybe you can help uh, tweak that. So it would be, um, you know, it will be helpful in the medical literature as well. 
I'd be delighted. And if I'm not the right person, I certainly know people to, to help help you. Um, Erica has a third uh, question, and she asks about the strategies and approaches that are successful at keeping people engaged in treatment. Well, this is a notorious issue for all of healthcare. How do we keep patients who have a chronic condition engaged in care? We've had difficulty in, you know, when we think about how do you keep patients who have hypertension, taking their pills every day. Some of the pills may have side effects and yet they can be life-saving if taken uh, for many, many years. What can we do to change uh, uh, for, for lifestyle issues related to diabetes and, and high blood pressure again, for example? How do we get people to exercise more regularly? How do we get them not just to start down those pathways that can be life-changing, but how to stick with them? This is a notorious issue for all of chronic disease management and addiction is not different from this. It's one thing to help somebody quit their substance, that's the first step, but to help them maintain their changes and remain abstinent and remain healthy over the long haul is of course a challenge. Uh, we do this by continue, with continued care, by making sure that people maintain their relationships and their contact with their physicians, uh, by sometimes having peer coaches to work with people. This is certainly an area where we need additional research uh, and we're looking for good ideas for how we can improve adherence and, and uh, uh, continued care over the long haul. One of the ways medically that we've been approaching this is through long acting medications. So instead of taking a pill every day, uh, there are now medications that may be administered once a month and there are even some on the horizon that may be administered even less frequently and still have the desired effect. So you may see advertisements on TV for certain medications that may be an injection just once every six months or once a year. Wouldn't it be great for addiction if we could do something similar where uh, medications only have to be administered uh, once in a while? So that I, I like to think of it as, if I need somebody to take a pill or take a medication every day, Every day, they have to make that decision to remain healthy and uh, 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 moving their life in a positive direction. But if it's only once every six months or once a year, that's not as hard to imagine. Those daily decisions are sometimes very hard in the long haul. I, I, I love and appreciate how uh, you, especially as a, a physician, um, show and demonstrate that addiction is a chronic um, disease like any other chronic disease and you approach it in the same way. Like, how is that any different than if I need to lose weight or if I need to treat my diabetes or my asthma? And and uh, your approach to that is identical. So I, I think that that's that's important to, to, to recognize. And it gives hope to, to people who have this condition. I think that's that's part of our goal is to remind people that these are preventable and treatable diseases. They can be, even when they're severe, they can be managed in helpful and in important ways so that to allow people to resume productive, healthy, successful lives. And that's a message that's really important, not only for the public, but also for physicians. Physicians also sometimes fall into that trap of fatalism and nihilism and thinking that there's nothing that can be done. And that's just not true. Uh, there are many ways by thinking of how the how we can use uh, uh, d different approaches to address these diseases that we can help people recover and get back to their lives. And if you think about the people and the methods that we treat diabetes the best or heart disease the best, 
they are multifactorial. I mean, you have the doctor, but you also have the dietitian, and you also have the physical therapist and you have the counselor and, and, you know, very different aspect, the guy, the certain, the guy who does the surgery. Um, but I think, and you would know if the research proves this, but the, the best success is probably with a multi-team approach on the, on the disease process. That's certainly been true for most chronic diseases. We have not seen those tested as widely or as effectively in the area of substance addiction. And mm -hmm. so that's something that we're very keen on seeing if those same models can apply and how cost-effective can they be? Because that's part of, I think the argument has been, well, maybe they might help a little bit, but they're very expensive to implement. And so it's important to do the high quality research so we can determine for which patients are these, uh, 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 all-purpose and sort of broad-based approaches necessary and effective. One of the projects I worked on at ONDCP and you were part of was a new project that we thought of in order to address the issue of quality of treat addiction treatment that there's, you know, we, we talked about, you know, best practices that, that NIDA is looking into the research for. Um, but also there there is unfortunately um, places where there's fraud and and the public doesn't know what, what's a good treatment, what's a not, not a good treatment. It's, it's hard to tell. So we came up with this concept called NCATS. Everything needs an acronym in DC, but the National Consensus on Addiction Treatment Standards. And we went to NIST, the National Institute on Standards and Technology, to kind of elevate the whole field and create standards. And uh, we had some momentum on that for a while. And then the pandemic hit. I'm wondering if that's, you know, on the anywhere in the potential to-do list for the future? Well, certainly the goal of developing standards for quality and outcomes of care remain a major priority for the National Institute on Drug Abuse, remain a priority for organizations like the American Society of Addiction Medicine and the other clinical organizations that take care of patients with, with addictive disorders. Uh, I have not heard follow-up from the NIST program that you're highlighting, but this remains of major interest. And so if it moves forward, we'll certainly be there to help guide it and help promote it. That's great. I We talked about various different drugs. I do want to talk about methamphetamines as that is remains our, our biggest issue in, in California and the West Coast area. For every patient that we have with an opiate use disorder, you know, we look for them because we have, you know, a whole program to start them on medication assisted treatment or medications for opiate use disorder treatment and connect them. We have all those resources and we can't wait to see a patient who has an opiate use disorder. And yet for every patient, who has an opiate use disorder that we find we're sending out with really very little resources for a methamphetamine use disorder. Um, and I'm wondering if there's a talk about decreasing some of the barriers for, for contingency management and increasing availability of treatment for methamphetamine. Well, certainly a major goal has been to develop medications for methamphetamine use disorder, for methamphetamine addiction, so that we can provide the kind of life-saving treatment that we have for opioid use disorder. Uh, uh, now you highlight for us the issues around contingency management, the difficulties of getting that implemented on a widespread basis. It has intrigued and disturbed me that we have a proven treatment that can really help people, at least for the short term, turn their lives around when they have a methamphetamine addiction. And yet we don't see that widely implemented. So as you and others have ideas for how we might 
change that policy and the policy barriers to its widespread implementation, we're certainly open to those. When it comes to medications, that's a major theme for our work at, at the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And uh, there's some success. We saw a publication very recently where a combination of extended release naltrexone with bupropion produces some, what I thought were impressive benefits. Now they're limited. The response rates are not nearly as good as I would like, but they are quite meaningful in terms of a, a, a potential clinical application. They remind me very much of when we try to help people quit smoking cigarettes and the medications for cigarette cessation only help a little bit, but it turns out that given the number of people with these problems, even helping uh, a, a, a bit can mean a large number of people have their lives turned around with them. So that's at least one example of how there's some at least potential medications on the horizon. And we're working every day to develop new approaches. So the, I'm glad you said that because I saw that publication and it, it, I was not impressed because they said 14% improvement. And I thought, isn't that a failure when it's only 14%? Uh, and your analogy with tobacco cessation medication, I think uh, I get that now. But but still, you have 14% improvement with these medications on a relatively small um, number of patients that were tested versus contingency management that was tested on thousands of patients with up to 90% improvement. Well, I, I agree with you. And that's why I, I, I think finding ways to implement what we know can be successful is so important. And I, I share with you the frustration that we haven't seen these widely used. The concern with contingency management is just, just for those in the audience that aren't aware, what it means is essentially using rewards, payments, or the opportunity to win a prize. So something of value as a way to encourage behavior change. So every time somebody comes to a a drug treatment program and hasn't been using methamphetamine, they'll get a very small direct reward. And these rewards can increase over time. So it's never a huge amount of money or a huge reward, but there's an opportunity. And it's a way to provide quite a literal version of attaboy and good job and encouragement using uh, concrete rewards to help shape behavior. We all know how important these are for uh, everyone for uh, raising children, uh, for uh, all, all, all of us respond to these kind of incentives and rewards. So using them in a thoughtful way to guide behavior that that we want to reinforce, which is not using methamphetamine, uh, is something that we want to uh, help figure out how to implement. And Dr. Compton, the NIDA website is full of amazing resources for clinicians and the public. Can you tell our listeners how to find some key features that you want them to know about? I think there are a couple of places on our website that I would highlight for you. First off, the website itself is drugabuse.gov. Or if you just enter the term National Institute on Drug Abuse or NIDA into a search engine, it will find us. On our website, you'll find materials for clinicians under our broad heading of NIDA Med. So NIDA Med is where we have screening material that can help primary care doctors and others dealing with patients on the front line, as well as, as, well as I would point out for the public and for clinicians, our drug information pages have a lot of useful information about each substance. 
So you want to know what happens with ketamine? How does it affect the brain and body? We have information about that. Of course, that information changes almost on a daily basis. So we update this regularly. Um, and you can find out just how up-to-date it is by looking at when it was last updated uh, uh, to make sure that it includes the most recent information that may have been published. And uh, so we will have that link on our show notes. And uh, with that, I really want to thank Erica for her great questions, for her advocacy, for the local community in the county of San Diego with projects on marijuana, methamphetamine, opioids, and prevention, as well as treatment, and evaluating that um, in a way to improve the community. And to you, Dr. Wilson Compton, you are my best friend in federal government while at ONDCP, you really helped me navigate a whole new world. And I'll always be grateful for your mentoring advice and partnership. Well, thank you, Dr. Lev. It's really been a pleasure to represent the National Institute on Drug Abuse, where we try to make sure that science enables solutions. And I'm really glad that you focused on both the polydrug use issues in the opioid crisis, as well as issues around stigma and how we can help clinicians and the public treat these uh, disorders as health conditions so that they can be treated and prevented just like other health problems. Thank you. And this is a wild thought is, and I really saw this during the pandemic and it's related to contingency management, but I feel like government is paying for drugs on both ends. We pay for treatment, disability, social security, but then I see people who got their pandemic check or disability check or social security check. And I, I learned this when I visited a marijuana shop, they said, oh, well, their sales go up, you know, after people get their social security checks. And so we're paying for drugs. We're actually paying for drugs. The government's using government money to pay for methamphetamine and fentanyl. Um, and the contingency management link here is what if someone is for whatever crime or mental health or whatever reason they get into the system, if they test positive for drugs, they won't get their government paycheck. They'll get a payee. It's not like we're going to cut them off, but they won't get the check themselves until the next time when they show some responsibility and then they could get. And that one way of our government dollars, really our tax dollars are, if you think about it, are paying for methamphetamine and fentanyl. Well, I think we don't regulate what people spend their their uh, uh, their income, whether it's a government resource or their personal income on. They can waste it on things that may be bad for their health or good for their health. Uh, just like you're pointing out the drugs that they may purchase, there may be inappropriate uh, uh, food products that they use. There may be entertainment that is of no particular value or even harmful to them that they may engage in. So I, I, I understand those concerns, certainly, but I'm not sure I'd want to regulate all of it. But that's a little beyond the research questions. When it comes to the research around this, there certainly is a background uh, in the area of chronic mental illness and serious mental illness where uh, uh, having payees for persons who have shown that they are not able to manage their own resources can be an important tool for helping people be successful and functional in the long run. And so those with uh, a very serious evidence of inability to manage their own payments can be assigned a payee as you describe. And that may play a role in the addiction field as well for those at the most extreme circumstance. That's something that could be studied and certainly is something where data could help guide and drive those, those ideas. Right, maybe 
especially for dual diagnosis. If you have repeated visits to the emergency department with psychosis, even psychosis that goes away once you're off the drugs, I think that that may be qualified just like a severe mental illness would. Well, I think we're getting a little beyond the research, um, mm -hmm. but I would encourage you to uh, uh, speak to some of the policy advocates and for those who are heavily involved in the treatment of persons with serious mental illness for some insights. That might be a good, a good topic for a future show because we see overlap among substance use and serious mental illness in unfortunate and dangerous ways. Definitely. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review. And subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.